We are in Psalm 126, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Psalm 126. Um, there's a few reasons that Jordan kind of alluded that we're in the middle of a sermon series, or kind of in the middle between two different sermon series. We just f- finished First Peter last week, and we were going to start kind of our Easter series this week, but we decided uh, to put that to next week, and we're just doing a standalone, non-series-oriented, <coughs> if you will, uh, sermon today. A few reasons, of course, um, that brought us to this, and I just want to share them to you, and then we'll pray. Um, the first is the sovereign hand of God made Jordan incredibly sick this week. So on Tuesday and Wednesday, when we're in our office putting the last touches and getting everything ready, Jordan wasn't in the office. He was throwing up sick and everything. So um, that, that caused a little shift, but for good reason, because uh, a couple other things happened this week. The second is uh, I was driving down, I went down to Columbia this past week and with a couple other pastors here in the, in the city, um, down there and back. And when we're all together, we start thinking and dreaming and talking about things in, in the city and how we want to do better to reach the city. And that just got me super like pumped up. And then while I was there in Columbia, uh, there was a sermon net that this guy preached. Um, sermon net just means like 20 minutes. We'll never have those. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but he was preaching and he, he ran through some stats about our state which I'm going to get to in a little bit, but those stats just shifted for me um, uh, some resolve that we have to start doing some really, I'm talking really major changes here in, in, at Remedy and, and across the entire state um, if we're going to start making <coughs> real, real headway in regard to reaching people that don't know Jesus. So I'll get to all that, and all that kind of culminated together where I felt like this looking at Psalm 126, we need to look at this together and hopefully the Lord will do something with it, not even in the short term, but in a really, really long term uh, kind of look. So let's pray and then we'll, as I said, we'll be in Psalm 126. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. God, we know that that it causes us to be changed. We know that it trains us, it teaches us it shows us the kind of people that we are to be. It teaches us the gospel. It explains to us what you've done for us. It unfolds for us your amazing glory and beckons us to join in with the rest of the world to give you glory. It demonstrates to us the, the great gratitude that we should have because of what Christ has done. <laughs> And then equips us and sends us to go make more disciples. And so, Lord, I pray for this morning that your word would do all those things. More than we can conceive. We love you and we ask for your help. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Psalm 126. That's where we'll be. And then we'll, we'll look at it. There are only two things today. Really, really easy things. But they're even alliterated. So, You'll be able to memorize them really easily. Uh, But let's look at the text first. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, 
bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So the title of today's sermon is Two Behaviors of a Gospel People. Two Behaviors of a Gospel People. So uh, if you're wondering, you're thinking, okay, we're reading the Old Testament and we're getting two behaviors of a gospel people. Were, were these particular people that were being written uh, gospel people? And what two behaviors can we draw out of a psalm that apply to us today? So, yes, they were. Let me go over to the New Testament. And this is really good for us all. Rehearse for us all the gospel. And then I'll bring you back over here and I'll help you see how this is patterning or giving us two behaviors of a gospel people. So um, if you've been with me, you know where I'm going. First Corinthians, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. We can go all over the place. Uh, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And <clears throat> want to reiterate this as often as possible. The gospel, which we all grew up knowing, is the message for unbelievers to hear in order to get saved. And it is that, without question. But it's not just that. There's far more to this gospel message than just unbelievers getting saved. It is also equally important for believers to hear this in order to continue in their walk with Christ, sanctification, salvation, however you want to say it. And so Paul reiterates that force right here in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he's going to say, I need to tell you who are Christians the gospel. And then he tells them. This is what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers... There's the hint that it's to Christians. I will remind you, that's the hint that says, I'm going to let you hear something you've already heard and that you should know. Remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you and which you received and which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the gospel that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So there is a way for us to believe in the gospel in a way that causes salvation, that brings about salvation. And there is a way for us to believe the gospel that's in vain. So the gospel that brings salvation causes us to be saved. And whenever we trust in it, we receive it, we stand in it, we're saved by it, and we're holding fast to it. But there's also a a non-salvific way to believe. That's what it says, unless you believed in vain. So this is demon faith, easy believism, um, those kinds of faith. And this, these are people that, that say they believe, but they're not truly saved. And this is what happens. And he, he tells us, and here is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And that's the gospel. And here it is. That, here it is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, there is a huge weight of information on that. We'll come to it. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So not only that he died for sin, but everything that happened after that is true and verifiable. And that he was, it was intentional that he was raised. And that there's actually resounding proof that he actually was raised from the dead. Because it said, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is also Peter, and the twelve. And not just to them, but listen to this. That he also appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. That are even, most are still alive right now. You can go ask them. Did you see this guy that was resurrected? Yeah, I did. Why would 500 people lie about something that they know is going to cause them to be put to death for saying it? It doesn't make any sense. So it's a huge risk on their behalf to say, yeah, I saw it and I believe. It's real. So it's a reasonable, verifiable, rational faith to believe that Christ Jesus died and was raised. But the main thing for us who who do believe is the why of death. That Christ Jesus died for our sins. So... We tell others, 
You need, to be, you need to put your faith in Christ so that your sins can be forgiven. But for us who are saved, and this is why you and I need to hear the gospel, is you need to con- constantly be reminded that your sins have been forgiven. He died for your sins. So that temptation right now for this particular thing that's wooing you away from Christ, you don't have to do it. And so we as believers need to constantly have the gospel preached to us continually. Another place um, demonstrates for us this, this gospel that's, that's been um, given to us. And this is just another way of saying it. But it, he says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 that Jesus has delivered us. So we were held captive in a dominion of darkness and then we, we are brought out. It says, and he has delivered us from that domain of darkness and then he's transferred us now to the kingdom of the son he loves. So we were held captive to our sin. We were devil worshipers as Ephesians chapter two verses one through three says. But now we have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. All right, so back over to... Uh, Psalm 126, and let's, let's get the full reason of why I say this is two behaviors of a gospel people. Psalm 126, the very first line says this. When the Lord restored our fortunes. And we need to re- realize when we read the Old Testament and it's describing the physical descriptions of the people, there's always spiritual metaphors and implications. So whenever what's going on physically here is happening in the Old Testament, when we look back through it, through our gospel lens, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we see, oh, okay, there's people right here, as it says in Psalm 126, that they're restored the fortunes of Zion. In the Hebrew, this can... This can easily be translated that when the Lord brought us out of captivity, we were like those who dreamed. This dream isn't like we were just all dreamy. It means like we were absolutely, utterly amazed, like in the best possible way. We were out of our minds with joy. When the Lord brought us out of captivity physically, we were joyous. When God transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light, then we as believers should have the same reaction. Just like they were joyous physically for being brought out of captivity. We were sin, we were held captive to sin and we've been brought out. We also should be like those who dream. We should also be like those whose mouth is filled with laughter and our tongue filled with shouts of joy. Calvin looks at this and when he looks at it, he says, this is not ordinary rejoicing. This is not just, woohoo, all right. Couple claps, golf clap, let's go, what's next? It's not that. Instead, it's, this is not ordinary rejoicing, but breaking forth into extravagance of gesture. Now, you may think that I gesture a little too much. But this is, what's being said here is extravagance of gesture. Extravagance of gesture. And voice as a proof of the renewed adoption by God. So what's happening for these people that were brought forth out of captivity is because they were brought forth out of captivity, they were so amazingly grateful that they are now not just ordinary rejoicing, they're breaking forth an extravagance of gesture, extravagance of joyce, because they want to put on a physical demonstration to others, proof that they have been renewed by God. And with similar joy, he, Calvin asked this question. This is stodgy 1500s Calvin, who held by the candle and wrote, well, that's kind of how we all picture Calvin with his big hat, and he's just right, and he's just all, you know, Mr. Goatee. Maybe you've seen the pictures. This is what he says. Then with similar joy... 
does it not become us then at the present days, right? This in the 1500s, to exult. That's, that's with the U, not the A. The exult means to show with great feeling in your worship. Does it not then behoove us or become us at the present day to exult with great feeling of worship when God gathers together his church? In other words, since we have been pulled out of this dominion of darkness, we have been brought out of captivity, there should be exuberant demonstrations of joy with the fact that that's happened. And he's saying that in the 1500s. Whenever it was, you know, stodgy Calvin with no, you know, good worship band or poor lighting or whatever. No, no PA system. So here's the thing. Here's the first behavior. As we're looking at this, we can see this first behavior uh, coming out of the text. A gospel people are grateful, joyful people. Gospel people are grateful, joyful people. If you look at the whole pattern of our life, yes, there are, there are times where we're sad. There are times when we go through suffering. There are times where it's difficult. But the overall arc of our life is an upward trajectory of joyful, grateful exuberation, or as he says, extravagance of gesture, extravagance of voice. What would it look like when we worship if you had extravagance of gesture and extravagance of voice? What would your outward demonstration of your gratefulness, of your inward devotion to God look like if we live that out? And I, w- I would add, there's even greater challenge here, even greater challenge in verses two and three. Because if we notice, there's um, the Old Testament people being uh, a light to the nations. So notice as it says that their mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues are shut with shouts of joy. That should be the overall propensity of your heart. You're, you're out of your mind for being saved that all you do is just explode with gratitude all the time. And then it says this. Then they said among the nations. So there's all these nations. These are unbelievers. These are the pagans. They are not the people of God. They're looking at the people of God and it says the pagans look at us as believers. Put ourselves in the Old Testament. We're living in such a way that the, the hand of God is clearly on us. And as we're living with the hand of God on us, it's shining forth to people where they look at us and say, they really are the people of God. Look how God's hand is on them. Look what God does for them. That the nations say, as it says at the end of verse two, the Lord, that's Yahweh, has done great things for them. They're serving as a light to the nations by letting pagans, pagans, unbelieving pagans, look at the way the Lord is moving their life and the pagans are declaring out the Lord has done great things for them. And then after that, there's a, a, uh, a juxtaposition from verses two and verse three of, I would say, a, an amazing challenge for us as believers. The nations are saying, the Lord has done great things for them. Then the writer also echoes what the nation says in verse three. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. What they're saying is right. The Lord has done great things for us. So here's my challenge. We should never, since we are the actual recipients of the mercy and grace of God. We are the ones who have received being moved out of captivity and transferred into the kingdom of the Son. We should never, ever, ever let them scream or shout louder than us about the mercies of God. 
They should never be able to say, the Lord has done great things for them, louder than we should be able to say, the Lord has done great things for us. Don't let them scream. Don't let them point out to you what God has done. They might not use those words, but they certainly have an ability to point out to us, wow, look, what, look what's going on in your life, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And you're like, wow, the Lord's done that. Look at those great things. And they are training us sometimes on what the Lord has done. Don't ever let that be the case. Don't ever let it be the case. Instead, let's live our lives as Calvin challenges us with not ordinary rejoicing, but breaking forth an extravagance of gesture, an extravagance of voice. That's what it means to be a, 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 a behavior of a grateful gospel person. So, I mean, we can just put it out there. Are we living, are you living with extravagance of gratitude for the gospel, because of the gospel? Rhetorical, don't answer out loud. Even though it'd be awkward if you did anyway. So, now, I should say, having that first one down helps us live out the second one. That's the first behavior, gratitude. Can't get over it still, amazed to this day. God saved me from the pits of hell, gratitude. I was held captive to sin. He came, I didn't deserve it, changed my heart, helped me see the gospel, transformed me, put me in Christ. I'm gonna live with him forever. I still hadn't got it over it kind of attitude. That's every day. Renew it, renew it, renew it. Go for it. Lord, give me that attitude. When we have that, we will be able to do the second behavior. I think the reason why we aren't doing the second behavior, which we'll get to, very well at all, is because we don't have the first one down. We're ho-hum, easily pleased, easily grateful for other things, smaller, lesser things, than Jesus and his gospel. This other things satisfy us. It's a shame. I'm with you. But if we can find it on our hearts, continually pushing to renew our hearts and minds, that the gospel is what continually satisfies, which is why we have to preach it to ourselves all the time, then we'll turn into the second behavior. Second behavior. Watch this. Verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. In the same way that verse one, when the Lord restored the fortunes or brought those out of captivity... Restore our fortunes, O Lord, can also be read. Bring back the captives, O Lord. I was held captive. I got to come out. But you know what? There's more. There's more. And here's my prayer, God. Because I'm so grateful, I'm declaring it to you. God, there's more held captive. Bring back the captives, O Lord. Now, Looking from the New Testament, we see how that happens. Matthew 28, it tells us that we are on the Great Commission, supposed to be the ones that are going to go make disciples. God's plan A, the only way that the, those who are held in captive are going to become Christians. Plan A, and it's God's plan A and no plan B, is this. That you and I, as the verb tense says in Matthew 28, as we're going, we'll go make disciples. So the, the declaration of Psalm 126, which is, bring back the captives. The Lord's saying, okay, I hear your heart. And that's exactly what I want. A deep heart that wants people to get saved. And here's how it happens. You, go make disciples. So here's the second behavior. The first behavior is 
that we're grateful, joyous people. The second behavior is this. Gospel people are a going people. Alliterated. Isn't that awesome? Grateful going, really easy. You can change that G right there if you want to. Great commission people. There's another one. I don't know anymore, but you can think of some more if you want. Gospel people are a going people. Going. We've been called, commanded, equipped, and sent to go, go, go. This is what we're supposed to do, is go tell people about Christ. This is a prayer. Verses four through six is a prayer unto God to say, pour out salvation, God. I wanna see people get saved. There's everybody around me that I want to be saved. Would you do it? We have to then see that happen by going, going, going. Literally bring back the captives. This is a plea to Yahweh, O Lord, all caps, that he would save everyone that's in captivity and do it quickly. Would you do it quickly? Now, in the text, there's two ways that this happens. You can see it right there in the text. One, now this is a picture, okay? This is a picture. Let's just start by saying, God saves. (laughs) I know that. It's God that saves. But in this picture, you're gonna see kind of two ways that salvation is happening. Real fertile, awesome soil. The Lord's just opened up the heavens and the Lord's work. The other one is man's doing it. Ultimately, I know God does it, but let's look at the picture. Here it says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. In other words, this is what we want, God. We want you to bring back the captives just like the streams in the Negev. That's how we want it to happen. Now, I'm, I'm pretty confident that none of you have vacation to Najeb, that you're not going there last week, you're not going there next week, you probably haven't researched it. I didn't either. I mean, I, I read the commentaries and now I know what it means. So let me just save our time. Here's what the Najeb is. Here's what it is. Um, the Najeb uh, is a arid <coughs> southern region of Judah, Judah and it's known for its really dry, dry gullies. So it's hard, compacted, hard soil. And whenever it would rain, it would always flood. So these, these dry gullies, when the floods would come, floods would go up to two and three feet. And he's saying, bring back the captives like the streams in the Najeb. In other words, Lord, we just don't want a couple here and there. I want the skies to open up and for it just to flow tons and tons of people out of captivity into, into salvation. So he's saying, um, in the way that the Lord can do, only the Lord can do, would you, this is a work of God, just open up the heavens and rend the heavens and let salvation just pour down around here. Scores and scores of lost people everywhere, God, and you can do it. You can open up the the floodgates and all those people can get saved in a a moment. That's kind of the the hand of God in salvation. But then there's the the hand of man. What is is our task? Because the Lord can just open it up and... you don't even do anything. You know, it's just like, whoa, people get saved everywhere. I didn't do anything. <laughs> like I just asked the Lord to save and I said something and all of a sudden, whoosh, he just took over. But then there's another way whenever that's not happening, when the floodgates aren't opened. And here it is, verse five. And listen, grateful people persevere through verse five. Grateful people for the gospel will persevere when verse four isn't happening, but verse five is happening. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
Notice verse 4 and verse 5. There's a commonality. Water. The floods and streams of God in verse 4. And the tears of man in verse 5. And sometimes the only water that's being produced hitting the ground is literally my tears hitting the ground saying, Lord, this is such hard ground. You're not sending the floods. So the only way that water is going to hit this ground is so hard is I'm going to cry. I'm going to literally produce the only water here and take them and shove them down into this hard gospel soil. And if this is the only thing that causes people to get saved, I will be on my knees weeping for the nations. Because sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes the only water being produced is our brokenness for the lost. Those who sow in tears. What happens shall reap with shouts of joy. So it's, it's bumping up against all of our brokenness for the city. It's bumping up against all of our real concern for the lost people around us. And it's saying, if the Lord doesn't bring the floods, am I still going to sow in tears? Am I going to be the only one that's going to produce the water because God in his sovereign hand isn't doing it right now? And so I will. I will cry the tears and I will shove them down into the ground as hard as I can and pray for this to happen. Because here's what can happen. While we persevere through hard time and the Lord doesn't seem to be given salvation, in a moment the floods can come. And God can save more people in one hour than than we've seen saved in 50 years. The streams can open up and the streams of Jeb, boom, just come. And we just get to sit back and be in awe of what God did. The key though for us, I think, is that we are grateful people that are going, that are sowing in tears. We are sowing in tears. There are seasons There are seasons when God will open up the heavens, send the floods, and bring the whole city to its knees. The whole city could be saved in an hour. So for us, let's be sowing in tears. I think the rest of verse five will happen. That we will reap with shouts of joy. I really believe that. So, I don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. I know it's a picture. But we have to be, have to be going people. Now here's the stats. This is what I want to be really clear about what being a going people means specifically for Remedy. That's, that's who we are. It's all we can take ownership of. Remedy. So let's take ownership of what Remedy. This is what it means for Remedy. Um, as I said, this past week, I went down to Columbia and they were talking about the state. They're talking about what's going on in the state. Um, and these are the stats in, in our state. In South Carolina, I'm not talking about like somewhere in the Midwest or the Northeast. I'm talking about South Carolina. The declining church is not something that will happen. It is happening and has been happening for a long time. In South Carolina. So here's what has to change. Here's the Huge challenge for us all. First, let's, let's go ahead and get you the stats. There are 4.8 million people in South Carolina, which we're a smaller state, but God put us here. So let's just say, wipe out for argument's sake, we're not missionaries to anywhere else. We're at, right now we're missionaries to Rock Hill, South Carolina. 
But right now in the state, there are 4.8 million people. Only a third of them call themselves evangelicals. A third. 1.68 million. Which means that over 3 million people in the state of South Carolina, a large majority, would not call themselves evangelical Christians. And I don't even like the word evangelical. It's kind of become more evangelical jellyfish. So let's just say gospel people. Gospel people. Talking about love the gospel. All about the gospel. That's who... About a third. About a third. And I think that's generous. 1.68. Now that means, listen, let the number astound you. In our state, our state, there are three million people. Three million people that would not call themselves gospel people. That's a lot. There's 75,000 or so in Rock Hill. So let's... Let's target in on our city and let's start talking about it. But look, we're going to look at some more of the state. In South Carolina, since 1978, since 1978, there have been roughly between, uh, I would say on average, about 15,000 baptisms a year. 15,000. And baptisms for us, these are Southern Baptist stats. Baptisms for us are a really good measurement of salvations. Usually, because of our theology, one gets saved and then one gets baptized. And so baptisms for us can translate for us in a pretty good, accurate level. How many people are actually meeting Jesus? We know that there's some people that maybe were baptized before or they were already a Christian and they weren't baptized yet. But for us, on the whole, it's a good number. About 15,000 people since 1978. For the last 35 years, we have plateaued in baptisms. 30 five years in a row. All the while, the population of the state keeps going up, but the number of Christians keeps kind of staying the same. And there's an ever-increasing change or disparaging kind of fraction here of people that aren't meeting Christ. So as South Carolina, since 1990, the church has increased in population, I'm sorry, the state has increased by one million people. Since 1990, we've gone up one million people. And we're seeing about 15,000 people get baptized Per year, And we all know that that's probably a little bit inflated, right? So here's the deal. The downward, this is, this is what, uh, this is the one sentence that kind of changed it for me. He said, the downward trend, if the downward trend of baptisms continually falling, which we've been doing for 35 years, 35 years we've been getting the same number. If we've been doing the same thing for 35 years and getting plateaued in the same results, It's the definition of insanity. We have to change the way we're doing it. We have to change the way we're doing it. If we keep doing what we're doing, we'll keep getting the same thing. And that's less and less people meeting Jesus and our ever-growing population. And soon, within 50 years, you can just kiss it goodbye. That's it. That's over. It's done. I mean, I know God can send the floods, but on the whole, it's over. This is what he said. If the downward trend was reversed and we started reaching as many as 20% more per year and doubled our baptisms in five years up to even 35,000 people, we would throw a party. But to put it in perspective, the lostness of South Carolina, I don't like that term, the unbelievers in South Carolina would move from 3.6 million to 3.565 million. So we would be throwing a huge party, but we still haven't scratched the surface. He used a football analogy, which I like because I understand football. He's basically saying, 
We're down. It's halftime. We're down 30 to nothing. And we need 70-yard bombs continually. And we're throwing, we, we should throw parties for that. But right now, what's happened is I'm dropping back, and I'm throwing a two-yard pass to this guy. And he's running two yards, and he's getting, he's getting tackled. And we're like, woohoo! Two yards! Boom, defense! And like, we're down 30 to nothing, and we're all celebrating for two yards. Like, listen. I know the angels in heaven celebrate every time somebody's saved. And we should be celebrating one hour at a time, major celebration. But we also have to put it into perspective. We're just scratching the surface on the unbelievers in our state. If all we're doing is going to keep throwing two-yard passes. We're just scratching the surface. Which means this. Our minds and our methods have to change. It used to work in the 50s and 60s. It used to work. Just go get people and bring them to the service. Just go get more people and bring them to the service. Just go get more people and bring them to the service. You just bring them to the service, they're going to get saved. And that did work. And from 1978 until 2015, that's what we keep doing. And it's getting smaller and smaller, which means this. We have to change the way we're doing it. We can't think that the way to reach the state, our city, anymore is by bringing them to the service. It's not working. It's just not working. So I'm sitting down and I'm talking with my friend. And here's what has to happen. We have to. This is, this is crazy, okay? I'm getting into literally the challenging part here. And you're going to look at me like, Fudd, that's insane. And I'm going to say, I agree it's insane. But we got to do it anyway. We have to sh- shift our minds now and start saying, we cannot be happy. Just simply cannot be happy with ourselves if the church at whole, all hundred and 25 to 130 of us share the gospel with tens of people each year or hundreds of people each year. This is where it gets crazy. The only way, the literal only way we will start making huge changes rather than just scratching the surface is if we as a church start reaching with the gospel. I'm not saying they get saved and I'm I'm not saying they come here, but gospel presentations, and I'm gonna do the math for you and show you how it's possible. We start presenting the gospel to thousands of people per year. Us. This is our task. This is our new task. Remedy Church, we have to start sharing the gospel with thousands of people per year. And then we're doing our part. We're being obedient. We're changing the method. So I'm sitting there with my friend, Matt, and I'm saying, what's the way? that Obviously what we're doing is not working. What can we do? And we started talking, and this is what, this is what we came up with. The only thing that's going to work, the only thing that's going to work is no longer come to the service and rest all of the salvations on the staff of the church. The only thing that's going to work is that we mobilize the sleeping giant. The sleeping giant is the 200,000 or 1.68,000 Christians in the state. There's a whole bunch of people in the state that are Christians. So if everybody gets mobilized, so this is the only thing that will work, I believe. We have to motivate, inspire, challenge, mobilize, and equip normal, everyday Christians like me and you to go out and start sharing our faith at alarmingly high rates. Alarmingly high rates we have to share the gospel. That will be things that will start making major changes in reaching this state. We have to find a way then to all of us start focusing our efforts on Christians being gospel-sent missionaries every day where they live, where they work, and where they play and have ongoing, continual gospel conversations. That just means while you're having a conversation, you talk about the gospel of Jesus. 
and not just gospel conversations, but also they, they have individuals that they're in, they're in relationship with that we have a gospel conversation, a gospel proclamation, and then they present them in a fashion that says, and now you should make a decision today. We're gonna get into the, the nuts and bolts of that, but that is the only way. It's literally the only way that it's gonna happen. There's, we are not going to have any changes in the state. We're not gonna have any, we're just gonna continue on the same downward trajectory, and in 50 years, it's not gonna be any different. One stat was given to us, and this was, this was amazing. Here's what's not happening. Most churches right now are not aware of how many members are actually doing this. But most churches right now, national statistics are showing us that about 5% of the church are doing this. 95% of the church are not sharing their faith, ever. Now, I don't think that's necessarily the stats with us. I don't think that's necessarily the stats with us. But I will say this, and this isn't, this isn't to shame you and make you feel awesome, nor is it to puff me up and make me look awesome. This is just, this is just who we are, and let's just get real, okay? I'm, I'm, I gotta get way better just like you. But seven out of the eight last baptisms that we've had have been people that were led to Christ by me or Jack. So, we are kind of getting into that national average. That's 88%. 88% of baptisms were led to Christ by me and Jack. At seven out of our last eight. We've had more, but I just found those. Now, I'm not trying to <laughs> boost myself up at all. I've got a lot of things I've got to work on, and I've got a big list here of things I'm going to tell you that I've got to get better at. But there's literally no way we're going to change this unless every one of us starts a sharing the gospel with everyone we can at alarmingly high rates. Alarmingly high rates. Here's the truth. <clears throat> this is what it boils down to. I'm 41, ye- 41 years old right now. God's calling me to be a pastor. I'm gonna be here until the Lord takes me home. I have no reason to ever think I'm leaving. I've been in ministry now for about a fourth of my time allotted, maybe even a third. I don't know what the Lord's gonna do. But I'm about a fourth of the way in ministry I've been in ministry about 20 years. I maybe have another 40, I don't know, we'll see. But here's what's going on right now. If we continue the way we are, my entire pastorate and our entire existence of a church will be this, that all we are doing is literally managing the decline of the Christian church in Rock Hill if we keep doing what we're doing. I don't, I don't want my ministry and I don't think you want your life to be defined by saying all we did was did our best to manage what we could, the decline of the Christian church in our area and in the place that God made us missionaries. Which means our mind has to shift from not reaching tens, not reaching hundreds, but reaching thousands per year with proclaiming the gospel. The results are up to God. But the proclamation of the gospel can be in the thousands per year from us. It absolutely can. And I don't want us to ever be satisfied with being a church that's just managing decline for 50 years. But instead, playing our part as well as we can and seeing what the Lord does. 75,000 people in Rock Hill, likely 45 of those aren't believers. 45,000, it's a lot. So here's what has to change. This is what has to happen. 
Start with me. My leadership has to change. I, I, I will be the first to admit I have not done a very good job at this, and, and it needs to change. First thing that needs to change is I need to model my own personal evangelism more often in front of you. I think the more that you see it, the more that you'll do it. The more that you'll have confidence, okay, FUD does do it. And so I need to do it too. And that by doing that, you'll feel more empowered. You'll feel more courageous. You'll feel more like, like a risk taker to share the gospel. And you'll do it. That's the first thing that has to happen. The second thing that has to happen is I have to, you're going to think it's crazy, and I, maybe it is. I have to challenge you even more than I already do to share the gospel. I have to put it in front of you even more that you need to proclaim the gospel more to people. Not only that, I have to start providing some kind of real type of evangelism training. I've always operated on the assumption, probably faulty. I've always operated on the assumption, hey, you know how you got saved. Now just go tell somebody how you got saved and they can hear that same message and they can get saved. And likely that's just faulty. That's that's bad. I, I don't know that everybody feels equipped. So some kind of evangelism training, if only three of you come, then only three of you come. But some kind of evangelism training that you can... Say, okay, now I feel like I actually know how to tell someone the gospel. And I don't, I don't think there's, there's any secret here. Like, I, I've read different things that say, you got to start broad about anything. Talk about hockey and get to that place where you've ta- moved into spiritual things. And you have this one transition sentence where you're like, okay, we've da-da-da. Now, transition sentence. And now I can get to this one pastor or professor. He's awesome. This is what he said. It's awkward. Don't worry about the transition sentence. Forget that. Just, just say, hey, I got something really important I want to tell you. It's super important. It's about Jesus. And then you tell them the gospel. Like, that's it. There doesn't have to be some magical transition sentence. And they're either going to accept it or not. They're either going to think you're weird or not. But we're the, gospel, the gospel is the aroma of death to those who are perishing and the aroma of Christ to those who are being saved. And when we tell them, if they're, if they're one of the ones that is the aroma of Christ, they're going to say, oh, out of the blue, yes, but that's what I've been looking for. And you just tell them, I got something really important to tell you. It's about Jesus. I mean, it's super important. Life and death here. Tell them the gospel. So I need to do better at planting, I'm sorry, at at training you with that. The next thing is that I need to do is we have to start planting more churches. I want to plant more in Rock Hill. Um, We need more churches in Rock Hill. Why do we need more churches? There's like 7,000. Well, there are, but we still have 45,000 people that aren't saved, which means we're not reaching them. And if everybody, all 75,000 people went to church right now, we couldn't hold them. So we have to have more churches so we can hold them. So we got to plant more churches. If you want to be a church planner, I want to do everything I can to get you equipped, get you sent, funded with people and gone. I want it to be in Rock Hill, but if it's somewhere else, that's fine. But we need to plant more churches. Stats show this. Every church, on the whole, see more salvations in the first five years than they do in the next five or the next five or the next five. If you look and you add up the number of salvations in one through five, five through 10, 15 through 20, et cetera, the most that happen are in one through five in every church. I wish we could go back and be in year one through five, but we're not anymore. We're in year seven, and so we just gotta try even harder to have a one through five mindset. So we need to plant more churches. That's what needs to happen. Here's what needs to happen for you. Here's what has to change. Gospel conversations. You have to have more gospel conversations. Just, there's no other way to say it. I've done some math. Here it is. If we share the gospel with an unbeliever, a unique unbeliever every week, a new person. It doesn't mean like I can't share the gospel with the other guy this week because I'm on the new one. You can still do that. But if every one of us at the church share the gospel once a week. Now listen, that's not hard to share the gospel with an unbeliever 
once a week. It's not hard. You should run into an unbeliever once a week. Again, the results are up to God. We want to do it in a winsome, loving way. But if all of us, 125, 130 of us, share the gospel once a week for an entire year, we would have effectively shared the gospel with 6,760 people in one year. That's a lot. We could share the gospel with everybody in Rock Hill in a decade, in 10 years. And that's assuming that no one gets saved and no one joins us, which I'm assuming that would happen. Generally, when you start talking to thousands of people about Jesus, some of them start responding, right? So it would be in less than a decade. Everybody in the city could hear and have a chance to respond to the good news of Jesus if all of us shared the gospel with a new, unique unbeliever once a week. Just remedy could have the task done in a decade. And there's a whole lot of other churches. But I don't lead the other churches. As we saw last week, I pastored this church. So that's our goal. Our goal now is this, that every one of us share the gospel once a week with an unbeliever. Once a week. That, I don't think, is remotely difficult. I don't think that's remotely difficult. Now here's the other thing that has to change. My leadership, our gospel conversations that we have once per week, but also our effectiveness. We have to change our effectiveness. Now you're saying, how can we do that? Isn't salvation up to the Lord? Yes. But here's how you can change your effectiveness. After you share the gospel, the last part of the presentation, agreed the most, most difficult, sometimes is left off. We just... Here it is. Think about that for a little bit. Let's, let's shift that. We got to draw the net, if you will. So if I'm fishing, I don't know if y'all like fish. I love fishing. So you throw it out there and eventually the, the, the fish comes and takes it. And if the fish comes and takes it and just goes, then he's just gone. And you're like, well, you just think about that for a little while. But no, that's not, you never do that when you fish. Eventually when he grabs it and he goes, you eventually pull the, yank, and I got him and then I reel him in, all right? Same kind of illustration. You don't just let the fish take it and just go think about it for a little while. You pull that thing and you reel him in. Same deal, all right? Eventually, you have to do this right here when you present the gospel. Here it is, and here's how you do this when you present the gospel. At the end of the conversation, you have to say something like, I, I, do, I do this all the time. It's the awkward part, but it's what generally leads to the actual salvation at that moment. What is keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus today, right now? Pull in line. You're pulling them in. They have to answer that. Or you can say, do you want to repent of your sin and be saved right now? Generally, people say yes to me right then. Okay, well, let's pray. Here's another one you can say. Will you trust Jesus right now and be saved and know that you'll be in heaven with him forever? That is what's left off generally in most gospel conversations, proclamations, whatever you call it. So not only do we need to share the gospel once per week, we need to increase in our effectiveness. Just think, that's right, I need to do this right here. It's time to do it. What's, change, what's stopping you from right now trusting Christ? Right now, this moment. Oh, you meant right now. Yeah, I meant right now. Right now, let's do it. Right here in Chick-fil-A or wherever you are. Now, here's our goal. Here's our goal. Gospel conversations once a week, <clears throat> 6,000 per year in a decade, hopefully... Everybody in this, in this uh, city would have heard the gospel. That's including people that, that are believers. We want to just cover them all, just for good measure. <laughs> Here's our personal church goal now. 
our personal church goal is, it starts in 2017 because we got to get you, this, we're already halfway through the year or fourth of the way through the year, whatever we are, third, whatever it is, um, equipped and ready. Starting in 2017, our personal goal as a church is, this is crazy, you're going to be like, I can't believe it, I'm serious, 75 to 100 baptisms per year. We need to have, at this church, 75 to 100 baptisms per year. That's just a 1% return rate. That's, if we share the gospel 6,760 times, that is a 1% that people get saved out of the, the 99 that don't. That I don't think is crazy. Now, here's why I think we can do this. This past week where I was at, they brought up a guy from, from York. He's not even from York. Anybody heard of Sharon? It's a suburb of York. It's like, you can only find it by getting lost there. You know what I mean? Like, it's tiny. And there's a guy, Sharon, South Carolina. It's a suburb of York. I mean, it's like an hour from here, maybe. This guy, he started, he got called there a few years ago with 50 people. And he said, I need to make some major changes here. He goes over to his wife. He goes, there's major changes I have to make. So here's what's going to happen. Either God's going to blow this thing up and it's going to be awesome, or I'm going to get fired. Is it okay if I get fired? Yeah, it's okay. All right, let's do it. So he goes off and he just makes these major changes, kind of like what we're talking about with his people. In one year, with a 50-person church, and I don't even know how many people live in Sharon, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we're way bigger, right? Pretty sure we're way bigger in Rock Hill. 50 people got baptized in one year with 50 people being on mission. We already have more than that. And I'm saying 75 to 100 baptisms per year. It's absolutely possible. All it has to be is this. People that are grateful for the gospel start going. Here's the, the hard truth. Here's the hard truth. If we aren't going with the gospel, we're probably not grateful for it. That's the hard truth of the day. If we're not going, if we're not saying, bring back the captives, O Lord, then we're not probably, no, we're, we're likely not happy and grateful for having been brought out of captivity ourselves. So that's the goal. And I want you to re- remember this. This this is what's going to make you bold to do it. We are not, as believers in Christ, peddling a product. The gospel is not a product. The gospel is far from a product to be peddled. Instead, it says, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. This means that we bear the message. We are literally carrying the gospel seed. We are literally carrying the message of salvation. Calvin says, carrying the price of the seed of salvation. It's indicating great value of what we're carrying. It's, it's so high of cost, it came at the, the price of the Son of God. So we're not peddling some ra- random product. We can be bold when we share this. We are literally offering life to people. Through Christ, I know. We're not just trying to get them a deal at Kmart. We're trying to give them eternal life. So it's a huge thing. Nothing to be fearful. Let me read you a couple quotes, and I'm hoping that these two quotes get your mind motivated for the kind of lifestyle shift that has to happen for this to happen. Hudson Taylor, would God make hell so real to the church that we could not rest? Hell's real, 
And sometimes I just don't think we ever think about it because we know we're not going there. May God make hell so real to the church that we would not rest. May God make heaven so real that we must have men there. And make Christ so real as our supreme motive and aim shall be to make Jesus their joy by their conversion. That's Hudson Taylor, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites. This is, this is an amazing thought. This is our mindset we have to have. If sinners be damned, at least them leap to hell over our bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go to hell unwarned and unprayed for. This is the mentality we must have. These kinds of people are grateful for the gospel and because they're so grateful for what the gospel has done in their life, now they're going. Now they're going. It says, he who goes out weeping, verse six, bearing the seed for sowing. I want, to, I want to make sure you hear this. If we go out weeping, this is, I'm broken. I'm passionate about my city. I'm not ambivalent. I'm not gonna live halfway. I'm not just gonna dwell in the mindset of tens and maybe hundreds over the span of this church lifetime that we're gonna reach. Instead, we are opening up the horizon saying, thousands and only thousands is who we're gonna reach. Never satisfied with just tens or hundreds. So I am going out weeping, broken for my city, believing that this gospel is so costly and so precious, so much so that it came at the very son of God's life. I'm going to be bearing the seed. I'm going to trusting that this message actually works. When I tell people they will trust in Christ, bearing the seed, this costly message, delivering it to them, we shall come home with shouts of joy. Just like verse two, gratitude filled the hearts of the people that we were saved. We will also have immense gratitude just like when we were saved, and don't miss this, bringing his sheaves with him. If you're bringing sheaves, that means a harvest happened. He's not coming empty-handed. That means salvation has happened. We, We can be confident, a promise here. The harvest will happen. The more people you tell about Jesus, more and more and more and more and more and more and more, it seems to be that's when people get saved. If we're quiet, they don't. If we talk to a whole lot of people, people will get saved. That's just the way the gospel works. Matthew chapter nine, verse 37 says, Jesus said to his disciple, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The laborers. If there were 50 football fields filled with corn, and I said, and they're all ready right now. They're not too early, not too late. They're all perfect right now. And they need to be brought in. They're all ready for the harvest. And I said, I'm gonna go do it all by myself. I'm gonna get all of them. You're gonna say, it's gonna take you a long time. Good luck with that. Okay, that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take my kids with me. It's gonna be a lot of them, six, seven. I don't know how, six or seven or eight or whatever it is now, right? And me, we're all gonna go out there, just me and my kids, we're gonna go get them. 50 football fields worth of corn. You're saying, still gonna take you a while, Fud. Still gonna take you a while. I say, okay. I'm gonna take my church with me. 130 of us are gonna go out there. Well, that's more practical. You're gonna reach the thousands. You're gonna get the thousands of corn if you do that fight. But here's the deal. The harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. What's true is the laborers aren't joining. They're scared. They're lazy. I don't know. But if we look out to the harvest, Jesus says, say four months comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. John 4. And so this is what I'm, I'm begging you. I'm, I'm pleading with you. Because there's no way it's going to happen unless you do it. Be a laborer with me. I got, I got to improve myself. The harvest is ready. The laborers are few. And I need for you, every one of you to become be laborers. There's no chance we reach all 75,000 unless every person here is mobilized and is being a laborer with me. So here's, here's where we're going to in our time of, of um, devotion. As we come into our time of thought and as we come into our time of reflection, I want you to reflect on what kind of laborer you're being. Are you even being a laborer? And this is what I want you to pray. God, make me a laborer. A grateful, going laborer that doesn't stop. That has a huge, huge view of this city. Expand my mind to not just scratch the surface on the lostness of the city, but see it radically changed. I need you. There's no way it'll happen without you. So as we go into a time of prayer, pray that you would be a grateful, going laborer. And then let's stand and sing, as Calvin says, with exuberance of voice, because he's worthy. Let's pray. God, you're, you're so good to us, and I pray for my friends here and myself, God. We, we all have improvements as laborers. Some need to actually become laborers. Some need to be encouraged as a tremendous laborer already, and some need to not be lab- lazy laborers. But start sharing the gospel at alarmingly high rates. We just trust you with the results, Lord. But would you, Lord, over the next 10 to 20 years of ministry that we have, would you send the floods of the Najib? And even if you don't, may we be obedient and sow in tears until you do. Help us labor well. We praise in Jesus' name.